You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. So about six years ago, uh, I, bought, I bought something called a big green egg. I don't know if you know what that is, but this is a picture of it. And um, yeah, that's my backyard, interestingly <laughs> enough. I, like, I live here in Miramar. I like to wake up in the morning and with a tall glass of coffee and overlook the mountains behind my house. Now, for those of you that went to public school, just FYI, that's not my house. That's just a picture. Um, but anyway, but I bought this. I did buy a big green egg, and uh, a big green egg is essentially it's a smoker. You can use it as a grill, but that's, it's a smoker Any if you want to make like ribs or brisket or things like that. And uh, over the last six years, I have gotten very involved in cooking dinner at my house. And my wife and I, uh, we make dinner together every night, seven days a week. It's, it's tons of fun. And... Um, but my journey in the kitchen did not start out good. In fact, I really couldn't do anything right. And my kids were so frustrated with me because I didn't know how to do everything exactly the way that my wife would do it. I remember when my daughter Olivia was about four or five years old, I was making a turkey sandwich. Like, how hard is it to make a turkey sandwich? And she's like, you did it wrong. You put the turkey in the wrong spot because you only mayonnaise one side, and that's the, spot, the side where the cheese goes. And if you put it on the other side, well, you can just imagine the disaster. Well, I just thought, like, well, just, let's just flip this thing over. And then, some, anyway, that did not work. And that just uh, increased hostilities. And um, I don't know how my wife remembers all of these little intricacies that uh, the kids have. And that's why I think when I get home and my wife has like this glazed over look and I'm like, oh, now I get it. Like you've been dealing with this all day. Um, and so, so one night my wife wasn't feeling well, so I made dinner and nothing too crazy. Um, this was before the big green egg, but I made pasta with red sauce and the red sauce was out of a can, out of a jar. I was just going to heat it up. I like, can't mess that up. And then I did have to watch a YouTube video about how to make pasta. And um, which was part of a subsequent series because it starts on how to boil water, which I did watch that just to double check. And um, but I, I so I made it and then I, I served it and my son was eating it. And Xander says, he's like, Dad, this isn't bad. And I'm like, oh, thanks, buddy. Do you want some more? He's like, absolutely not. And uh, OK. And uh, my daughter, Livy, starts eating it. And she's like, Dad, this is disgusting. You should go on the show Worst Cooks in America because you'd win. This is horrible, and I'll be honest, that hurt a little bit. And uh, so that was six years ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I make some ribeye on the big green egg, and uh, my kids are going nuts. And I'm just basking in all of it. Like, yeah, tell me more. Tell me how great it is. And Livy, uh, she's like, Dad, you are the greatest griller in the world. Because I remember, I remember when you were the worst your food was terrible. Now it's great, but it was so bad. And my daughter, Mia, is my oldest. She's like, Livy, throw it back. That's rude. She's like, no, Mia, it's not rude. Dad was horrible at cooking. His food was the worst ever. I wanted to barf every time he cooked. And now he's great. How's that rude? And uh, now, and so there's, 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 wherever you are in life, there's hope for you. All you need is a grill and YouTube. That's it. Now, um, here's what I find amazing, and this is kind of where we make the, the transition, but uh, when I think of the 12, 
the 12 disciples that Jesus called, the 12 that walked with him for three and a half years, the 12 guys that took the message of Jesus around the world after his resurrection, they didn't start out as the guys who always knew what to say or knew what to do. I mean, they were like worst cooks in America level, right? They were contestants. Um, but here's the thing, and by the way, as we t- and I want to I, I really have us get to know these 12 today in our time together, but there's a couple of things you need to know about the s- disciples of Jesus that I think are important. Number one, they were younger than you think. Most of the disciples were not, you know, like you watch these movies about Jesus and they're all like middle-aged bald guys with beard and leg hair, and uh, it's not even close. The disciples of Jesus were very young, most of them in the range of 12 to 18, Uh, Simon Peter being the oldest, who probably was uh, somewhere around 20. And uh, scholars, some scholars believe that the Apostle John could have been as young as 10 years old uh, when when he first encountered Jesus. That's why in Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks, but uh, there's this strange little story that happens because Jesus and the disciples show up in the town of Capernaum, which is Jesus's hometown. And Peter gets asked, uh, does your rabbi pay the temple tax? Now, The temple tax was levied on every Jewish male above the age of 20. And Jesus tells Peter to go fishing, and he catches a fish that has a coin in it. The coin, it's a stator in Greek, but that is enough for two people to pay the temple tax. And it begs the question, why did Jesus only pay the temple tax for him and for Peter? Well, it's because they were the only two that that were older than the age of 20. And the other issue is, is that the fact when Jesus calls all of these guys, they were all already working in the family business. If you've been with us in the Gospel of Matthew, we've talked about that, that when someone uh, would, would the, a rabbi would show up on the scene, people would choose that rabbi and start following him. But then as he wanted to thin out the ranks, he was looking for those who he believed was the best of the best. And so then if he didn't think you were gonna make the cut, he would, he would take you aside and he would say, my son, I bless you and I now release you to go into the family business. And that was the rabbi's way of saying, hey, it's not me, it's you. And so we're done. And so anyway, so the fact that Jesus meets all of these guys and they're already working in the family business tells us that they've already been rejected by another rabbi and they were just now just working in, in the family business. But somehow these 12 individuals changed the world because they saw their teacher die and three days later they saw him alive. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I, I, this is a fascinating thing, is that if you ever follow the links in the chain, that is who led you to Jesus and who led them to Jesus and who led them to Jesus and who led them to Jesus, it's kind of like the Pert Plus commercial, if you remember those, that they tell their friends and their friends tell their friends. It's kind of like that, but in reverse. And if you go back, you're going to find, you're going to get to Jesus and 12 guys. And, uh, and the thing is, is what I want to do in our time together is um, help us to get to know these guys a little bit better, because I really believe it's going to encourage us that God can do great things through very imperfect people. And we're going to see not only how God calls them, but how Jesus commissions them to do ministry in his name. And what we're going to see is, and I think this is really the bottom line for us, is that God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for available people who will answer the call. So we're going to start in... Uh, Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 10 in, in verse one. Here's where we start. He says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. 
and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, or Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. If you pause there and give me your attention, three things that we're going to look at about the disciples, but the first is this, is that the disciples were specifically called. Now, the thing that Matthew does is that he records them in pairs. So there's six pairs of two. And uh, this was done because once again, many people in that culture were literate, or even if they did read, uh, there weren't just books laying around. And so this was in being written for purposes of memorization. And we kind of lose that, uh, which I think we could probably do with some memorization. When I was in college, getting my, my undergrad in theology, um, I had a class in the Gospel of Matthew, and our professor came in one day and said, who can name all 12 disciples? There was over 100 people in that class, and only one person could name all 12 disciples. And um, it was the best-looking guy in the class. And, um, and you're like, well, it certainly wasn't you. Who was it? And uh, no, it was me. And, uh, and, and, and uh, much to the... Um, chagrin of the other students, but uh, which I, I share this with you just because I think it's important for you to know that your pastor excelled in getting his theology degree because I always talk about what a terrible student I was, but I peaked in, I, you know, I just didn't do well in high school, but I peaked in college. Uh, I peaked at the right time. So anyway, that's why I tell my wife, 50% of doctors uh, graduated in the bottom half of their class. I know you've never thought about that before, but that's a question to ask. Like, hey, where'd you go to school, doctor? Oh, I went here. How'd you do? Not just that you pass. It's just like, oh, man, I just scraped by. You know, it's like that you don't want that guy cutting you open. All right? So now, so I want to go through these names, and, and I think that it's important for us to understand. Uh, you're going to really see the humanness of these guys. They didn't walk around with halos. Uh, they, were, they were regular people, and, and for lack of a better term, it was kind of a motley crew. So let's start with the first two, uh, Peter and Andrew, or Simon and Andrew. Uh, they were brothers, uh, Peter being the most famous. If, you've, uh, if you suffer from open mouth, insert foot disease, then Peter is your patron saint uh, because he just said so many dumb things and thankfully they're all recorded for us. And um, it gives the rest of us hope. But one of the great things that Peter said is, and we'll get to this in Matthew chapter 16, but Jesus asks them when they're up north in Israel in an area called Caesarea Philippi, and he says, uh, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And people start saying this and that, but G uh, Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's Jesus' response to him. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is this amazing moment where P uh, Jesus is commending Peter, saying, Listen, you didn't just figure this out. This was something that my father revealed to you. And so he's feeling pretty good. And that's why, uh, and then on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, Jesus says, listen, all of you are going to desert me. And, uh, and Peter's like, no, there's no way. I'll die for you. And uh, later that night, three times, he denies even knowing Jesus at all. And, uh, but Peter gets it together. He comes back and he becomes a leader in the early church and ultimately uh, dies in Rome uh, as a follower of Jesus. And because the Roman method of execution was crucifixion, but he didn't believe that he deserved to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. So he asked the Romans if they would crucify him upside down. And uh, I've always found it funny, if I can just say this, like all these satanic bands 
they, they use upside-down crosses to show like how against Christianity they are. I just don't have the heart to tell them that the upside-down cross has been a Christian symbol for 2,000 years. It's the symbol of humility of Peter. If you go to churches in Europe, there's upside-down crosses everywhere because it's a Christian symbol, Peter being crucified upside-down. But you know, they're so angry, you just gotta let them go. And uh, just like, hey, we'll just, we'll get to you, but you know, just relax. So anyway, um, Andrew is, uh, so that's Simon. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. His claim to fame, Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist before he was a follower of Jesus. And if you want to jot down uh, John chapter one, verse 40, that's where you can track that down. But uh, Andrew is the one who brought his brother Simon to Jesus. And he was the first follower of Jesus because John the Baptist told Andrew to stop following him and start following Jesus. And then uh, Andrew, after the resurrection, the church begins. Andrew becomes a missionary uh, around the area of the Black Sea, if we can see this. So uh, this is Jerusalem right here. So when everybody's going out into all of the Roman world, uh, Andrew goes north uh, through um, Asia Minor is what this is, this is modern-day Turkey, and then he goes around the area of the Black Sea. So this area is uh, modern-day Russia, and um, this area is now Ukraine, which, once again, most are uh, inter experts in Ukraine now because, um, like, most people were, had become infectious disease experts two years ago, but they retired from that, and then were like, you know, I'm taking up Middle Eastern, uh, uh, you know, uh, Eastern European politics as my area of expertise. So anyway, most people know that. Uh, and then you come down and then you have Greece and, you know, all that. Um, so, but this is where Andrew spent most of his uh, adult life after the church was born, was doing ministry around uh, the area of the Black Sea and the people that, li that lived there. Uh, the next two people that are mentioned are two of my favorites, uh, uh, James and John. James and John were a couple of loose cannons, and, uh, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you how, how, how we know that is uh, this little moment in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Check this out. It says, that the t as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead and went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, heard this, they asked, now check out this question, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Um, and then the disciples went to another village. I don't know what's funnier. Uh, the fact that they wanted to call down fire from heaven or the fact that they thought they could. Uh, and, and because of this, Jesus gives them a nickname, which is Boanerges in, uh, in Greek, but literally means sons of thunder, which sounds like a pro wrestling tag team. Um, and so, uh, but, but Peter, James, and John, these two brothers, become part of Jesus's inner circle. Now, uh, James, unfortunately, is killed in Acts chapter 12 by Herod Agrippa. He becomes the first of the apostles to be martyred. John lives into his 90s and uh, writes five books in the New Testament. He writes his gospel, uh, the gospel of John. He writes three letters, uh, first, second, and third John, and then he writes the book of Revelation. Uh, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus uh, for a time, and he became known as the apostle of love, and I love this, that he would go and speak at these churches as an older man, and um, he would get up when it was time for him to speak, and he would just say, little children love one another and sit back down. And uh, if you read 1 John, that's kind of the theme of, of 1 John. And, and, the, and here's my point, is that you might be someone who is quick-tempered, ready to call down fire from heaven at any given moment. But here's the cool thing, is that God isn't done with you. Is that you could be known for something completely different. 
by the time God is done working in you. Um, that you could have started out as a son of thunder and, and end up as, uh, as the apostle of love. Next up is Philip and Bartholomew. Philip is a Greek name, and uh, we aren't told what his Hebrew name is, but uh, he is the one in John chapter 1 that brings Bartholomew to Jesus. Now, his name, Bartholomew is not uh, his real name. His real name is Nathaniel. That's his Hebrew name. Um, uh, Bartholomew is, it, remember I showed you a moment ago, he says, uh, blessed are you, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, and uh, that Bar means son of in, in Hebrew. So Bartholomew is son of Bar-Ptolemy, which is his dad's name. So calling him Bartholomew or Bar-Ptolemy is like calling someone junior, but his given name is, is Nathaniel. And next up is Matthew and Thomas. Matthew, we talked about last time, his, na- his Hebrew name is Levi, he was a tax collector, uh, Thomas, that's not his real name either. That's a nickname because Thomas means the twin. And uh, uh, it's also called Didymus, which uh, means the twin. And uh, scholars are kind of divided on this. Some people, uh, some scholars believe that he was called uh, the twin because he had a twin. Other scholars believe that he's called the twin because he looked like Jesus, which I think that would be awesome. You imagine that guy's online dating profile? Tell us something about you, God-like looks. I'll tell you that. That's it. That's all I got. That's all I need. And, um, but uh, he's known as the doubter, but I really, uh, you read, you read what, what Thomas says, and, and I, I think a lot of times, it's not that he's so much a doubter. I think he's just kind of the Chandler Bing of the group, um, where he's just like wants to just say the sarcastic remark. In fact, I, I'll show you, and uh, this is in the story, Lazarus has died. And uh, the, his sisters are asking Jesus to come. So here's what happens. So when he had heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying to stone you, and yet you want to go back? And then Jesus gives this whole explanation about why. And then look at Thomas's response. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, yeah, let's go. We can all die with him. And uh, so... Anyway, that's, that's, that's Thomas. Uh, we also have James, the son of uh, Alphaeus. He's also called uh, James the Less, uh, not to be confused with James, the brother of John. So he's called James the Less, or literally in the Greek word, it's micros. And uh, so calling someone James the Less would be like calling someone tiny, which means he was either really small or really big, because that's how that nickname works, right? And so uh, then, but in fairness, Micros could also be translated younger. So it could be that James was just younger than the James, who was the brother of John. And uh, I, I used to work at a company when I was in college that manufactured home accessories. And um, I got hired, and uh, the CEO's name was also Bob. And it was a small office. There was only about 10 of us. And so they, they were trying to figure out, like, what are we going to call Bob? And so they'd call me Bobby, but they, he went by Bobby as well. And so they were like, well, we're going to call him Young Bob. So they called me Young Bob, and then they called the CEO, everybody's boss, they called him Old Bob. And um, which, that's why I have committed that I will never hire anyone in this church whose name is Bob. Because I'm not going by Old Bob, that's rude. So um, Thaddeus is the next guy. Thaddeus is an interesting guy because he has a couple of nicknames. Uh, his real name, and you see this, if you want to write this down in Luke chapter 6, Acts chapter 1, his real name is Judas, or Judah, son of James. But there's already another Judas. So, which we'll talk about him in a minute. So he went by the name Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus is a derivative of the word in Aramaic for breast or nipple, which once again, as far as nicknames go, 
this is not great. So it's kind of like calling somebody mama's boy. And uh, so then he also went by Libius or Lebius, which that means heart child. And by the way, is there anything more like 60s psychedelic? It's like, yo, what's up, heart child? You know, anyway, you drop an acid today? And uh, not him because he was an apostle. But, um, but he's like, you know, but heart child, he's like a sensitive guy, right? He's a lover, not a fighter. And, uh, but there was this guy, if you're a basketball fan, there was a guy who played for the Celtics uh, years ago named Glenn Davis. I don't know if you remember Glenn Davis, but he went by the nickname Big Baby. And uh, which, by the way, I just think is a tough nickname if you're a professional basketball player trying to be tough. Like, what's up, big baby? You know, which I think is kind of the same idea. But then again, are you going to go with big baby or like nipple man? You know, I mean, these are tough choices to make. I don't know if that was a wrong thing to say. I'm just going to move on. And um, now there's only one thing that's recorded that Thaddeus, Libius, Anyway, that guy. Uh, there's only one thing that's recorded that he says in John chapter 14. It says, uh, you'll see it on the screen. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the, whole, and not to the world? Great question. Um, and by the way, you're like, oh, that's it? You got one thing that he says? Listen, I would love to have something I said in the Bible, a question that I am. The problem is I just know myself and I know it would be something ridiculous. It'd be like, uh, and then Jesus said to all the apostles, are you eating that last donut? You know, and then, you know what I mean? And then Jesus rebuked Bob. He's like, what are you doing here? Get in your time machine and get out of here. And uh, so this is how it gets away from me, by the way. And uh, so, all right, lastly, we have the last two. Simon the Canaanite, or the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Now, zealot is an extremely polite way of saying terrorist. And uh, because the zealots, that was a whole sect in Israel, they're goal was to overthrow Rome by committing acts of violence. So they would carry these small knives uh, called the sikah in, in their, under their cloaks where they would stab Roman soldiers in crowds. They would stab Jewish sympathizers with Rome uh, in the crowds. And so that must have been a great conversation between him and Matthew, right? Matthew was a tax collector, worked for Rome for years, and then they're like sleeping, you know, one bed apart. And, and Matthew's like, hey man, I don't do that anymore. And I just feel like it's important for you to know that I, I left the tax booth. I started following Jesus. And I just want to make sure that, how do I know you're not going to hurt me or stab me in my sleep? And, you know, Simon's like, you don't. Sweet dreams, Uncle Sam. And uh, so <laughs> uh, these are things I think about. And uh, lastly, we have Judas Iscariot. And let me just tell you, Iscariot is not a last name. Um, Iscariot is two Hebrew words, um, ish which is the Hebrew word for man, and then Kerioth. Kerioth was a town about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And uh, he is the only disciple that's uh, not from the area of Galilee. And so he was known as Judas, the man from Kerioth. And, uh, and so we can all um, agree, I think, as we go through this, that this is not who we would pick to be an all-star team. What I love, though, is that these guys became an all-star team. And what I also love is that we can all read this and find someone to relate to, that even though these guys weren't the best and the brightest, Jesus chose them and called them to serve in amazing capacities and change the world. And listen, the point is Jesus isn't looking for superstars. Jesus is looking for people who will answer the call and he'll turn them into people who can do amazing things. So what does he do with these 12? Look what happens in verse five. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, for, uh, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go to an, a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you or hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And if you pause there and give me your attention. First thing we said was that the disciples were specifically called. The second thing is this, the disciples were strategically sent. They're strategically sent, and there's something important here that Jesus talks about that I want to spend a little bit of time talking about so we can really understand this, and that is the subject of the kingdom of God. Throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus went preaching the kingdom of God, John the Baptist was preaching the kingdom of God, the disciples were preaching the kingdom of God, and the, then sometimes people are like, what is the kingdom of God? And um, simply put, the kingdom of God is anywhere that God is reigning as king. So when Jesus tells his disciples to go into a town in Israel and hear, heal people, he's telling them, show people what life is like in the kingdom of God. When you give your life to Jesus, that's the kingdom of God coming into your life. And now Jesus is reigning in your life. And the more that we allow him to be king in our lives is to the degree that we will allow and see Jesus uh, working and changing our lives. The problem is sometimes we want Jesus to come into our lives and we want all the benefits of the kingdom of God, but we still want to be king. That's not the way this works. And that's why there's this struggle and we're trying to figure out, well, I really want Jesus to do something great in my life. Well, that's awesome. You got to decide that you're not king anymore. You're not the one who's leading. You're the one who's following. Because when you're following, things are always better if you're following the one that you should be following. When my son was born, my son turned 13 last week and uh, it was an amazing, amazing time. We have two teenagers in our house, so pray for me. And, uh, but which has been, listen, teenage, having teenagers has been, a delight, honestly. It's been, it, they've been amazing. Um, but when my son was born, he was about six weeks old or whatever, and we just, we decided to go away for the weekend, and we rented this hotel in Orlando. I got a crazy cheap rate at this hotel, and so we went, and we were just like, we're just going to hang out by the pool. So we got there. It was a little bit confusing, but it, it was, uh, the, the hotel was a total maze. It was under construction. When we got there, we got lost in the lobby. Now, I want you to think about how difficult it is to get lost in the lobby of a hotel. And um, my wife and I and Mia and Xander, uh, we got lost. It, it, that's, now I realize why the hotel was so cheap. I mean, this place was, you know, basically they were ripping this place down to the studs. And, 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 and you know, so they had all these mazes and whatever. So we're going to go down the next morning to the hotel pool. And Carrie says, she's like, Bob, why don't you call down and find out how to get there? And I'm like, Kara, I'm not going to call. I am a man. And I'm not going to call down there. How do I get to your pool? Like just, you know, we're just, we're going to feel it out. We're going to know where water is. And we're just going to, we're just going to head in that direction. And my wife is like, okay, we'll see how this goes. And so anyway, so truth be told, I had no idea where I was going. I just figured that it was just going to hit me as I went, which is kind of how I 
think about most things. And so anyway, so, but then I just got this vision. I'm like, I know where I'm going. And uh, I'm like, Carrie, follow me. And so, uh, and, and so we were making these twists, turns with total confidence. And within just a couple of minutes, we opened this door and the pool is right there. And Carrie is like, how in the world did you do that? And I said, well, there's this guy that was in front of us and he had this giant inflatable alligator. <laughs> I've been following him because the only place you take a giant inflatable alligator where it's not weird is the pool. And uh, so that's where we went. And, uh, and listen, but listen, that's, life is better when you're, you're, when you're the one following and Jesus is the one leading. The kingdom of God isn't God getting into what we're doing. The kingdom of God is us following him and doing what he's called us to do. And what I love about this is not only are the disciples preaching about the kingdom of God, they're learning about the kingdom of God as well. That's why he says, don't take any extra stuff. Why? Because where God is guiding you, God is also going to be providing for you. So don't worry about the extra stuff. And they, the, if you're going to stay at a house, then um, let your peace be on that house. And that was a very rabbinic thing where um, if a traveling rabbi would come to speak in a synagogue, they would find someone in the town that was um, very excited about this rabbi, and they would allow, them to st- allow the rabbi to stay in the house. And then he would just pray a prayer of blessing over the home. And, um, and then, but if the people of the city wouldn't listen then they would do this very Jewish thing and they would just shake the dust off of their feet and leave. And it was, again, it's a very Hebrew way of saying, I'm not gonna carry any of this mess with me as I move on with my life. And that is such a good practice. I think too often things happen and we just carry it with us. We carry it with us for months or for years because we just can't shake it. And I love the idea of just shaking the dust off your feet to remind you that this thing that happened, it ends right here. I'm not carrying any of this mess with me for the rest of my life. I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to think about painful words that have been spoken to you. Think about relationships that brought so many problems. Think about like the years of your life that we've given to people who just don't deserve it and they don't care. And, and how much pain could we have saved ourselves if we would have just shaken the dust off of our feet and moved on? And Jesus is telling his disciples Hey, if they don't see the value in your message, shake the dust off your feet, move on, and be free. And listen, some of us have been working so hard to get people to see our value, and what we need to do is just move on and find people who already see the value in us. When I was in high school, I used to uh, collect comic books, uh, and mostly Spider-Man and Punisher and whatnot, but um, I collected a few others. But one day I was in, one day I was in this shop, it wasn't necessarily a comic book shop, although they sold comic books, but they was, it was more of like a candy store, convenience store, and they sold baseball cards too. So they had like this area where they had some collectibles, but then most of it was just people buying bags of Doritos and whatever. And um, so I walk in and I'm just flipping through the comics and, uh, and I see this. Now this is X-Men number six. And, um, and I was really taken back. Just so you know, this comic book sells for about $5,000 today. Um, back then, because this is back when, I mean, electricity was new. And uh, so back then, it was, a, it was worth about 600 bucks. And uh, I bought it for $2.50. And someone had, I guess a day or two before, had sold a bunch of comics to the shop. And as I was talking to the guy, they gave the guy like 50 bucks for all of his comic books. And because he had no idea what he had. The shopkeeper had no idea what he had. And he put a $2.50 price tag on it. And it wasn't until someone who understood its value showed up that things changed. 
I paid $2.50 for that comic book, and I ran out of there as fast as I could before anybody learned what had happened. And, um, and listen, that comic book uh, was part of what funded my first apartment and my wedding when I was getting married. And, uh, and, here, and here's my point, is that if people don't see the value in you, they're the wrong people. And some of us have been living with people who are somewhere between the guy who sold the comics who didn't see the value and the guy who priced the comics at $2.50 and didn't see the value. And no amount of arguing is going to get them to see that you're a valuable collectible. So here's what some of us need to do. We need to shake the dust off of our feet and find people who see the value in us. Well, Look at what happened. Now Jesus is going to, he's sending them there, but he's going to give them some instruction. He says this, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing is that not only were the uh, disciples, they were specifically called, they were strategically sent, but the last thing is they were spiritually empowered. Verse 16, and if you ask my kids, I probably have this conversation with them once a week about being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Jesus wants us to be both. Uh, in the ancient world, especially in, in Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, snakes were portrayed as shrewd, smart, cunning, and wise. Doves universally are a symbol of peace. They're considered pure, innocent. And Jesus is putting this together to create a composite of how he wants believers to live. That we should be wise as a snake, but instead of a snake who uses its wisdom to lie in wait, to strike and do harm, he says we should be wise knowing when to do good and when to speak. You see, how does this work for us? And Jesus says, I'm sending, he's sending his disciples out into a world that is hostile towards believers. It was hostile towards believers then, and it's hostile towards believers now. And, and what we need to do is not only know how to say the right thing, but know when to say it. And when we do, listen, we can, we can find ourselves not winning arguments, that's not important, but, but winning the relationship, which is even more important. So when someone questions you and is like, I don't understand how you can be a Christian, I don't understand how you can believe Christianity, it, it's, it'll, it'll go in a couple of different directions. So let me give you uh, a couple directions that it'll go in. This will be fun, well, at least for me anyway. I don't know about for you, but it'll be fun. Um, like, so one of the objections that people say is, um, I can't believe you're a Christian. What about all the horrible things that have been done in the name of religion? Isn't it better to just live in a secular society? Now, I mean, how in the world do you answer that? So let me, let me explain. First of all, there have been terrible things that have been done in the name of religion, but that doesn't mean all of them have been done in the name of Jesus, and there's a difference, okay? And so it, we need to differentiate that. But then what people will say is they'll say, yeah, but what about the Crusades? Now, one of the things that I like to do because, you know, I, I like to cause problems is um, I, I'll, people will ask, well, what about the Crusades? And I'll say to them, I'll say, can you explain the Crusades to me? And they go, what do you mean? You know, people were crusading. You mean like the Cape Crusader, Batman? Tell me about the crusades. Well, you know, there were just crusades and people were killed. Like, all right, but I mean, that that, that sounds like a weekend in Chicago. And so, (laughs) but explain, sorry, sorry for that, sorry for that truth. Um, And 
And so, but so anyway, so, <laughs> sorry, I liked that one. Uh, so what happens is this, it's like, okay, explain to me. And, and so now let me just explain the crusades. The, the crusades are characterized as Christians marching, marching into Europe and killing Muslims. That's how it's uh, characterized. It's completely false. The Christian crusades were a response to Muslim aggression that had lasted for 400 years. By the time the Byzantine emperor asked for the Pope's help in the 12th century, two-thirds of the Christians in the world had been captured by Muslims. And you know what they did when they captured uh, Christians? Uh, they, uh, they enslaved them, turned them into soldiers to fight and capture and kill other Christians. In fact, uh, Thomas Madden, who is a uh, crusade scholar, he wrote this. He said, the crusades are in every way a defensive war. They were the West's belated response to the Muslim conquest of fully two-thirds of the Christian world. Now, that's not to say that there weren't rogue soldiers who did terrible things. However, the crusades started as a defensive measure. Now, let's talk about the peace that a secular society would bring. The good news is, we don't even have to imagine that. The 20th century, we tried this over and over. Uh, communism was popularized by Karl Marx and at the turn of the century and was in influenced Stalin and Lenin as they built the Soviet Union. It influenced Mao as they built communist China. It influenced Castro as he took over Cuba. And it influenced Kim Il-sung as he built North Korea. These people that I just mentioned killed over 100 million people in the society that they built where they made the practicing of one's faith illegal. So to say that living in a secular society would be safer because Christianity is, an e is evil because of the Crusades is an argument from absurdity. And by the way, and I love to ask this question to atheists, when they'll say, oh, you know, this, uh, and I'm gonna say, okay, then you guys are the fun-loving ones, so can you point me to the hospitals, orphanages, and food banks that have been named after atheists? And, uh, and th there, aren't, there aren't any. Why? Because it's only people of faith who care enough about the hurting and marginalized to build institutions to serve them. But the key is this, is it's not just having the right information. It's having the right information and knowing the moment to share it and being able to share it in humility so that we're not beating people over the head, but instead we're loving people into the kingdom. Now, let me give you another one, and this is one of my favorites. Um, when people say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, man. I just, I know the Bible is so full of contradictions. That's why I don't believe. And I've done this. You've got to try this at least once in your life. So fun. So maybe not for them, but it's fun for us. As, um, if, and it's even better if you have your Bible, but um, I've done this so many times. And um, when they say, oh, man, the Bible is so full of contradictions, like, no kidding. Hey, could you show me one? And uh, let me tell you, I've been doing this, gosh, I'm a better part of 30 years. I've never even had uh, someone who doesn't believe even touch it. Like, whoa, whoa. I'm like, listen, man, I'm not, if I hand it to you, your, your hands are not going to sizzle. Like, and if it does, you got problems. And, uh, and so, and, and by the way, so I had, a, um, I had a professor in college, brilliant guy, absolutely brilliant. I took as many classes as I could with him. And, um, but he was nuts. And, uh, which I think made me like him even more, but he was this guy and he would tell his students, you need to bring your Bible everywhere. So, and he, and he didn't just bring his Bible, he'd bring his Bible and just smack it down wherever he went. So he tells a story about going to a restaurant to pick up food for his family. And he just shows up and just boom. And he slaps his Bible down at the bar 
where he's picking up food. He's telling the bartender that he's here to pick up an order. And there's a guy drinking at the bar. And the guy drinking at the bar takes a sip of whatever he's drinking, and he says, that's a holy Bible. And, they, and then my professor's like, oh, I got a live one now. And so and he's, like, and he's like, yeah, it is. And the guy's like leaning away. He's like, that's a holy Bible. And he's like, yeah, that's right. And then he just he steps closer to him. He says, you know, the, the Bible says that it's alive and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Ah! And uh, that guy almost fell out of his stool. A fun time was had by all. And um, that guy was never asked to return to that restaurant. And uh, the other guy was screaming. It's great. And, um, and by the way, let me just, let me just I'll tell you this. Um, when someone says that they don't believe or gives one of these tired excuses as to what that they've heard along the way, ask them, like, oh, I don't believe it's full of contradictions. Okay, can you explain that to me? Oh, I don't believe because of, you know, Christianity, crusades. Okay, can you explain that to me? Um, and because and, here's what we do. Oh, I don't believe the Bible. I just think it's inaccurate. And Christians, man, we get, we, someone just says that and we start spouting off everything you know about the veracity, authenticity of the Bible. Like, just, just take a breath. Take, breathe, and then, like, and hold on, you hold on. You, it's good to know that stuff, but you just hold on to it. Instead, you let them defend their claim. They just told you their worldview. Now, just, okay, can, you, can I ask you a couple of questions about that? And then you're going to ask them a couple of questions. And then when they, when they, once again, because most people, we talk about worldview a lot here and why we believe what, the, what we believe. Most people aren't thinking about, you know, um, if, is my worldview totally in sync with reality? I mean, people just kind of think what they think. And, but when you, you start asking questions and then they're like, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. And, and they, maybe they can't answer. And then you say something like, you know, this is such an important conversation. And truth is, before I was a Christian, I actually had some of the same thoughts. Can I share with you what changed my mind? Well, yeah. Well, you know what happened now? Someone just opened the door for you to share the gospel with them. And you, you, now you've respected their view, you've asked them to, you've asked them to clarify, and now you're going to clarify what, what, you, what you believe. Because, um, and once again, they, people say the whole contradiction, they don't know, they just, you know, they had a college professor in their first semester of college who's still mad, right? The guy's still mad that his parents took him to a boring church when he was a kid, and he's still railing against Christianity for 25 years. Like, we get it. You didn't like the church you went to. Let's move on. Get some therapy and move on, dude. Um, okay, last one, and because they don't let me preach as long as I want to. Um, and so, all right, people say they don't believe in Christianity because um, it's oppressive, and it approves of practices like slavery and uh, polygamy. Right, two fun-loving topics. Um, so now let me tell you what happens sometimes is that people will, uh, they will take a verse out of context because they don't understand what the Bible says when it refers to slavery. Um, because there are verses about slavery in the Bible. Uh, what we think is, is that what we do is that we take a Western American 21st century understanding of slavery and now we apply it to that every time the Bible mentions the word and we think that it's, it, it, it involves people owning other people, and it's somehow connected to race. Well, that view is wrong on all counts. Uh, the Hebrew word that's translated slave is this Hebrew word abed or aved, and um, it, it, it's translated either slave or servant in the Old Testament, and it speaks of someone serving, and this is, this is what's happening, it's serving until someone's debt was paid. When a person fell into debt and had no means to repay, there was no chapter 11 bankruptcy. There was no, well, I'm just going to call some kind of 
consumer credit consolidation firm. I saw them when I was watching, you know, One Life to Live. Is that show even on still? I don't know. Maybe it is. Um, but I was watching, and then, you know, that's not the way it worked. Uh, in the ancient world, when you had a debt, you repaid it. And if you, couldn't have, if you didn't have the money to repay the debt, then you indentured yourself as a servant to the person that you owed this money to, and you served them until the debt was paid. And then you went free. It was not forever. In Exodus 21, God sets the limit that a person can only serve to pay off their debt for seven years. That also limited how much a person could borrow and how much debt a person could get into because the person borrowing is saying, I'm only going to lend a certain amount because I know if this all goes haywire, I've only got seven years worth of work that I'm going to get out of this person. But here's, here's the thing you got to understand. In Exodus 21, verse 16, it's in your notes. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but it's there in your notes for you to look at later. Slavery by force or through kidnapping was a crime that was punishable by death in ancient Israel. If a master mistreated a servant or hit him or her, that person was free to go and their debt was considered canceled, according to Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27. In Job chapter 31, we learned that a slave could take his master to court if he felt like he was being treated unfairly and he could sue for the rights that he was being deprived of. In Exodus 20, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 23, we learn that if you find a slave that has run away from his master, God commands that you don't send the slave back. Why? Because if he ran away, the situation must have been pretty bad. And it's in your notes in uh, Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16. My point is, does that sound anything like slavery in America? No, because it wasn't. And this is why when people say, well, why doesn't the New Testament speak out against slavery? It's like you don't understand what slaves, what the repaying of debt was all about. And by the way, the New Testament does talk about slavery, that all of us were slaves to sin. And Jesus died for us and paid the price for us to be freed from the greatest slavery. You see, what happens is when we think of slavery, we think of slavery in America, and we think about it within the context of race, which is totally wrong. And, and here's the thing. When the Bible speaks about slavery, it's not talking about 21st century America. It's speaking about that context historically. And when you, you always have to put the Bible in its context, not our context, if we're going to get an understanding of it. Lastly, let's finish on the subject of polygamy, which is always a hit. And, um, and so, oh, the Bible, um, people don't like that. The Bible talks about polygamy. And um, what the Bible does, listen, one of the things that you got to understand when you read the Bible is that sometimes the Bible is descriptive. It tells us what happened. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive telling us what to do. There are no verses that tell us, here's how you marry your sixth wife, all right? No, but what it does do is describe what happened. So it faithfully tells us what people did. And if somebody married a bunch of women, then it just tells us this person married a bunch of people. Uh, Robert Alder, who is an Old Testament scholar, I have a bunch of his commentaries, he has this great quote on the subject of polygamy. He says this, if you think the Bible condones polygamy, you don't know how to read because every person in the Bible with multiple wives is having a terrible time. And um, by the way, I've always found it so strange that a culture that says love is love, don't judge it, judges how other people in other culture operate in their love lives. And so isn't that strange? And, and so the, this culture that says it's oppressive and bigoted to judge who you love, unless, of course, we're talking about the Bible and ancient Israel, then it's perfectly fine. But I'll tell you, if you want to just take the insanity to a different level, um, uh, I, I read this article uh, probably about a little over a year ago that um, uh, this recent city 
council decision that happened in Somerville, Massachusetts. Now, this, this is what got me reading it was because I grew up in Somerville. Um, the city council for Somerville voted unanimously to acknowledge polyamorous uh, couples. You know what polyamorous means? That is more than two people in a relationship. Interestingly enough, you know what polygamy means? More than two people in a relationship. And they're like, no, no, no it's totally different. I'm like, well, yeah, the spelling. But besides that, it's exactly the same. And um, now here, here's the part that I just find so interesting. I, once again, I grew up in Somerville. I went to elementary school uh, in Somerville and in Arlington, which is the town next door. I spent every weekend of my life until I moved to Florida in Somerville with my dad. I played Little League in Somerville. This is not an activist town. This is a blue-collar, working-class city uh, on the, in, in the area of greater Boston. And the fact that they're pushing this just shows how far we've gone uh, as a culture. And, and once again, the point is this. These obje- most of these objections have rather simple answers if we just kind of take a step back and, and frame it. But the key isn't to blast people. It's to communicate in an understandable and humble way because the goal is never to win the argument. The goal is always to win the relationship. We want that person to come to know Jesus and they need to know that we care about them more than we care about being right. That's why we have to be harmless as a dove and wise as a serpent. And Jesus is sending us out in the same way he sent the 12 out. And listen, you might say, well, they weren't an all-star team, but they became an all-star team. And you might say, we're not an all-star team, but we can become an all-star team because he's chosen us to tell the world that the kingdom of God is here. And my friends, that's what communion reminds us of. It reminds us that Jesus died so that we could experience the kingdom of God. We could experience forgiveness, grace, love, and mercy. And now we have that opportunity to share that with every person we come into contact with. So I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward and uh, they're gonna hand out the communion elements and I'm gonna ask that you hold on to them because we're gonna uh, partake of the elements together and uh, Johan and the band are gonna lead us. Today there's no reason to wait
The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Verse 25, he says, In the same manner he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you that you call us, that you've saved us, and that, Lord, you want to do a work not only in us, but through us. So I pray, Lord, that while we're imperfect, I pray that we want to be people who are available to everything that you have for us. So I pray, Lord, that we would experience the calling on our lives and that you would deploy us into ministry and the people who we love that are far from you, that you'd use us, that they might come to know you. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.